It's Tuesday, October 5th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Oh, there's that bed that brings me alive. Yeah, welcome to Radio Free Oz here on RadioFreeOz.com from beautiful Blue U Studios on this gorgeous fall afternoon. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, across from me. My co-host, David Osborne. Hi there, Uncle Peter. Oh, I'm feeling... You know, you know, you know, um, things are getting more and more exciting up there in Blogsville, up on the website all the time. Yeah? People, well, you know, I mean, uh, I don't have people... I've got people emailing me. Right. But now I have people emailing me about things you've said. Well, that's good. That's kind of a round robin. I think approach. it's very cool. Uh, so, so can I start out with a little, uh, a little follow up on a story today? We were talking about the city of Bell in California. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I want to tell the listeners out there that we're videoing ourselves oh, yeah. doing this. This is part of the uh, road to Oz. See, I'm talking to you, but they can only hear it. And you, I'm talking to the camera. This is crazy. You, the Ozineers, the people who are subscribing, go on up to the Ozineers page and find out all about it on the site. You get to watch it. Go ahead, David. Now you've made me completely self-conscious. Well, I hope but, so. But okay, Pete. Anyway, those, uh, the, the California mayor of the city of Bell, who was making $787,000 plus. <laughs> I mean, you got it. Maywood Bell, I trained at, in Maywood Bell. It's a little industrial nothing in the middle of Gomorrah in Los Angeles. It's nothing. <laughs> well, they, they, they busted those guys. But uh, here's Glenn Banks, an old and dear friend, uh, who wrote in saying, Peter is right. Vernon, he's talking about another one of those soulless cities, meatpacking city. Yeah, Vernon is a soulless dump. It's also where I work. Lately, I see a lot of media trucks camped out in front of City Hall. The reporters are sniffing blood. The city has operated for at least 50 years as a corrupt fiefdom. The elections are rigged by threatening any challengers to the throne with violent death. Strangely enough, the incumbents have been seated for over 40 years. Oh, my. The city smells alternately either like freshly baked ice cream cones or dung. One of the plants here does coffee roasting. I can look out my window here and see the happy pig mural on the Farmer John Abattoir. They will never get to the bottom of the corruption in this city. Vernon is an unforgivable blight. But I enjoyed the show. Oh, hooray. I'm <laughs> so, Go so ahead. Okay, well, you know what, David? Let's get on with the show. Let's do it. Uh, from Reuters. An apparent cyber attack on Iran shows the vulnerability of critical national infrastructure systems to attack through widely used computer programs and imported technology. So somebody sent a worm after the, the Iran nuclear system. Iranian officials said on the weekend that the Stuxnet worm had infected staff computers at the Bushehr nuclear power plant, but had not affected major systems there. The worm utilizes security holes in Microsoft Windows and a key Siemens industrial control system. The Stuxnet worm is a wake-up call to governments around the world, said Derek Reverend, professor of national security and a cyber expert at the U.S. Naval War School in Rhode Island. It is the first known worm to target industrial control systems and grants hackers virtual control of vital public infrastructures like power plants, dams, and chemical facilities. Uh, that was one of the themes in uh, Live Free or Die Hard, one of my favorite 
favorite Bruce Willis films with Justin Long. I just love the relationship between the two. But that's what the bad guy was doing, okay? He was doing it with worms and, and other various bots and spiders. Reports suggest the worm was uploaded onto Iranian computers over a mobile flash drive, the tiny computer drives often used to transfer data between computers. While most experts agree Iran was the likely main target, and some estimates suggest 60% of computers affected are inside the country, there has been much wider collateral damage as the worms spread around the world. India in particular has been affected. In some senses, cyber attacks like biological attacks are very difficult to control, said Revron. If a government were to launch a cyber attack, the potential for fratricide is very great. Asked if the U.S. might be behind the attack, cybersecurity expert James Lewis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington said, it could be, but how about the Israelis, he continued. They're good. It could be the Brits. They're good. Could be the Russians or the Chinese for some weird reason. U.S. Naval War College's Reveron said it was possible it could have been done by a group outside a government. Symantec estimated that fewer than 10 people working over six months could have written it, he said, referring to the respected tech security firm that initially tied the worm to the attack on Iran. When it comes to cyber issues, governments trail behind private industry and non-state actors. I like that as a new name for them, like Red Bull chugging moldy hackers. Non-state actors. Oh my, to hack have arrived. It would look as if the future has an influence on what happens today or yesterday. So it would look as if some effect from the future goes back to us today. Polling on Obamacare has been pretty consistent. 40% like it, 40% don't like it, and the other 20% could care less. That over half the public is unimpressed with this major reform of our healthcare system puzzles me. But what I find most astonishing is the insane lengths to which the opposition has gone to demonize it. How about those death panels we would face? Deciding if there's enough wage earner left in us to pay for the heart transplant. Totally bogus. But that doesn't stop Sister Sarah and her foxy friends from spreading the lie and scaring half of our rest home residents to death. So... In the pursuit of truth and sanity, let's take a look at the key Obamacare reforms that went into effect last week. First, providers won't be able to cancel a policy because of a typo on the application. The insurance companies will have to find other work for that legion of nitpickers who cast honest clients into purgatory for want of spell check. Second, insurers can't deny coverage to kids because of pre-existing conditions like hay fever, asthma, or sports injuries. I get it. Why should we make the kids suffer just because there's too much ragweed, polluted air, and AYSO leagues? Third, no more limits on the amount of coverage. So if I develop a chronic condition, I don't have to lose my savings, my self-esteem, and move back in with my parents in Shaker Heights. Fourth, the provider will pay for mammograms and standard immunizations. Pretty radical, huh? Denying Americans their inalienable right to breast cancer, diphtheria, polio, mumps, and measles. Fifth, in case of a medical crisis, I can use the nearest emergency room without penalty. That's a relief. The last time I had a car accident, I had to drive my broken body in my broken car across town to my local ER to cover the charges. There they are. The core of the new regulations that healthcare providers must abide by. 
not exactly the Maoist, Stalinist, Communist, Socialist, totalitarian takeover that the corporate shills, co-opted congressmen, and oversteep teabaggers are trumpeting. Wait a minute. Are the insurance barons threatened by the prospect of healthy Americans? Do they fear that if, if they can no longer play doctor with our bodies, that we'll recover and take back the treasures they stole from our sick beds? Does that vision make them ill? Not to worry. Their local Obamacare physician is in and will see them now. Well, you remember, David, that just recently we did a big, long article on the Medal of Honor game, video game, that, that is now taking place in Afghanistan and soon Pakistan and very realistic. By the way, the person that put this abomination together is Steven Spielberg who probably is like myself in the fact that he's a wussy intellectual. No, I was in the Army. He wasn't. So he's flexing his virtual muscle here. Uh, Medal of Honor. Thank you, Stephen. Not. Okay. Video game publisher Electronic Arts, they're they're the people that put this on, is pulling a controversial feature that would have let players join the Taliban. From Medal of Honor, one of the most anticipated releases of the year. Uh-huh. Okay? As originally planned, players in virtual battle online could team up in squads, one side of insurgents designated as the Taliban, with U.S. troops as their target. After rising criticism, including a sales ban in Army and Air Force exchange outlets, EA decided to change the game. Changing the game ain't easy, by the way. They must, they, uh, I got to tell you, our consultant, John Cumming, um, the Oz team and consultant, was a person who used to take groups of these gamers because he was a head gamer and and, and put them in weird uh, uh, undisclosed locations and forced them to work all day and all night to make these kind of changes. It's a real code shop, code sweatshop. So they're sweating it out. Right. So, so wait, just let, let's take this back. You mean we're going to play cowboys and Indians, but you can't play the Indians? You, no, you no? can't. No. Here's, oh, okay. what, here's what you're going to be able to do. No, you're <laughs> quite right. right. But right. the Taliban, worse than Indian. Worse right. than Indian. Worse than Indian. No, no. worse. Because oh, we couldn't, we can't kill all of them that easily. Not only one by one. Go ahead. To be sensitive to families and friends of fallen soldiers, the game will be changed so that the opposing force or op for see they have their own names inside video not taliban will be in the multiplayer mode so you can go you can become a member of the op for but not the taliban but you watch the taliban's going to hear about this and they're going to start infiltrating the op for all right all right so this uh this said producer greg goodrich medal of honor is a big thank you letter to the troops and if this one word costs some troops be not able to receive that. Let's change it, and hopefully people will get that. It's a big thank you letter to the troops. Yeah, I wonder what letter that uh, is. Does anybody uh, on our side not get killed? In which case, that would be nice. Otherwise, it seems to be a brutal, horrific, miserable attempt to abuse our children with death. You know, you're right. Yeah, this is weird, and it's from CNN, okay? This isn't out of Harumph or Perumph, Utah, or some strange late-night radio. Seven former U.S. Air Force personnel gathered in Washington this week to recount UFO sightings over nuclear weapons facilities in decades past, accounts that a UFO researcher says show extraterrestrial beings are interested in the world's nuclear arms race and may be sending humans a message. Well, it's about time. At a news conference at the National Press Club, the six former officers and one ex-enlisted man recalled either personal sightings or reports from subordinates and others of UFOs hovering over nuclear missile silos or nuclear weapons storage areas in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. 
Three of the former Air Force officers, though they hadn't seen the UFOs themselves, told reporters that UFOs hovering over silos around Montana's Malmstrom Air Force Base in 1967 appeared to have temporarily deactivated some of the nuclear missiles. Now this I like. Much of the testimony already had appeared in books, websites, and elsewhere, but UFO researcher and author Robert Hastings, who organized the news conference, said the time has come for the U.S. government to acknowledge the UFO visits. I quote him, I believe these gentlemen believe that this planet is being visited by beings from another world who, for whatever reason, have taken an interest in the nuclear arms race, which began at the end of World War II, said Hastings, who added that more than 120 former military personnel have told him about UFOs visiting nuclear sites. He says he doesn't know why, for whatever reason, maybe because they're worried about blowing up the planet and uh, and maybe the radioactive dust, the way we're creating diabetes and, and, and obesity and, and sickness all over the world with our radioactive dust from depleted nuclear arms, uh, depleted uranium arms. Maybe they're worried that blowing up the planet will do the same thing on a galactic level. In any case, they're watching us. Regarding the missile shutdown incidents, my opinion is that whoever was aboard those crafts was sending a signal to both Washington and Moscow, among others, that we are playing with fire, that the possession and threatened use of nuclear weapons potentially threatens the human race and the integrity of the planetary environment, he said. So I guess he said that after all. Former Air Force Captain Robert Salas, who had written a book about the Montana incident, said he was underground when a UFO hovered over his missile silo in March. March 1967 and therefore couldn't see it. He said one of the guards above ground told him a red glowing object about 30 feet in diameter was hovering just above the front gate of the facility in an isolated area from Malmstrom. And just as I called the commander, our missiles began going into what's called a no-go condition or unlaunchable. Essentially, they were disabled while this object was still hovering over our site, Salas said. Salas and others said the military urged them at the time not to talk about the incidents. The Air Force investigated UFOs from 48 to 1969 under a program eventually called Project Blue Book. The service on its website says the project concluded that no UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force has ever given any indication of threat to our national security. It also says there has been no evidence that sightings categorized as unidentified are extraterrestrial vehicles. Oh, I like that. Oh, talk about <laughs> stitching together a cover-up quilt. Oh, my, my. Anti-abortion activist Randall Terry is upping the ante on his as yet widely unknown campaign against Islam by creating a video instructing Tea Party leaders how to pull their own Quran-tearing stunts and garner media attention. This is this this is this a-hole who's been running all the, you know, shoot the abortion doctor campaigns for ever so long. I guess abortion's on the back burner now for Randall. He's going after Islam. Why is Islam part of the Holocaust? To my fellow 
Tea Party activist. Oh, he's joined the Tea Party. Listen to me. You're about to see instructions on how to get into real battles, not just in front of our computers, not just blogging, but a go to the public square like Samuel Adams and like our great patriots did, Terry says in a video. Yeah, Sam Adams and the other great patriots went and tore, you know, tore up pages of the Bible. Or no, they went and tore up pages of the Magna Carta in front of the uh, Boston garrison in order to enrage them and show them how manly they were. The video was part of Terry's campaign for anti-Islam activists to rip passages of the Quran printed on posters at the potential location of the Cordoba House Islamic Center in New York uh, on October 6th and 7th. Okay, the truth of the matter is, he says, and you don't go to Randall Terry for the truth of the matter, but nonetheless, if you just do this with a bold and stout heart, with just you and one other person, just the two of you, chances are you're going to get an enormous amount of coverage and your voice will be heard by thousands, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands, Terry said in the video. Terry says he wants to call attention to what he calls the anti-Jewish and anti-Christian parts of the Quran, as well as our need to defy Sharia law while we still have the freedom to do so. I'm telling you, all of these scum buckets are latching on to the burn the Quran campaign. It's so easy for them to understand. No wonder Hitler, it was so easy for Hitler to get people in Berlin and points east and north to gather up all those bad books and burn them. Watch out, baby. Fear and hate 451. All right, Peter. I, um, you know, I read these stories in the New York Times and uh, you underline paragraphs and things that people said that you want to remember and mm -hmm. suddenly they're all they all just become poems to me so uh, this is a poem uh, based on gates and i don't mean bill gates i mean secretary of the army gates yeah who revealed several interesting things and here's the poetic version of that see what you think when i finish okay okay a cadre of military leaders cut off politically culturally and geographically from the population they're sworn to protect. Recruits come increasingly from the South, the Mountain West, and small towns. Army posts moved to just five states, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Texas, Washington. Our young military leaders have to one degree or another found themselves dealing with development, governance, agriculture, health, diplomacy. Their peers are reading spreadsheets and making photocopies. Well, I, I love that. That is the that is the new army. The crazy thing is, is that they're they're not at all prepared to do any of that. I mean, you know, these are people from small towns who, who only have one of five states to choose where to train, and then they have to go off and be State Department and Army and International Monetary Fund and psychiatrist. Development, governance, agriculture, health, and diplomacy. Oh my God! I mean, what a degree to take from the university when of nowhere. <laughs> When we bring our officers home, maybe they can do something useful here because gosh knows we could use some governance and agriculture and health and, and all those things. And a little diplomacy. This is from Talking Points Memo. It's pretty good news, I think. 
The closely watched race for Senate in Kentucky is now a statistical dead heat, according to a new poll that shows Republican nominee Rand Paul leading Democratic nominee Jack Conway 49 to 47. The last poll conducted in late August showed Paul ahead 55 to 40. In the ensuing weeks, the Courier-Journal reports Conway has built momentum among women and those wary of Paul's extreme conservative views. Boy, I tell you, if the Democrats can pull the women to the polls, it could be kinda okay. The poll shows that Conway, the state's attorney general, is now appealing to voters who say they are neutral to the idea of the Tea Party, Paul's base of support, the paper reports. And Conway is building a significant lead among women who earlier were almost evenly split between the two candidates. Well, you babes, you go. You keep Ayn Rand's love child out of office. That man is stone plain crazy. From the New York Times. Among the most iconic moments of the 2008 presidential campaign were the scenes of Barack Obama, shirt sleeves rolled up in front of a sea of voters that seemed to go on forever. Even toward the end of the election season, the crowds dwarfed those of the Republican opponent, Senator John McCain of Arizona. At some locations, tens of thousands of Democrats rallied for their candidate. Since becoming president, Mr. Obama has gone small. Except for a few rallies during the height of the health care debate, the president has largely eschewed stadiums and wide open spaces in favor of smaller town hall style meetings or even backyard conversations. But that is about to change. The president is scheduled to hold an old-fashioned campaign rally on the campus of the University of Wisconsin in Madison this week. Party officials said they expected thousands to cram onto Library Mall, an outside setting, to see Mr. Obama. A senior Democratic Party strategist said the event would be the biggest political rally since the end of the campaign and is meant to recapture some of the old excitement and energy from the 2008 campaign that was so essential to Obama's and the Democrats' success. The strategist said the White House was also trying to leverage the single event with more than 200 watch parties across the country, much as Mr. Obama's campaign did two years ago. It's not about one event in one state. It's about generating excitement across the country, the strategist said. It's a pretty big deal. For the president, it better be. With the midterm elections just over five weeks away, Mr. Obama's Democratic Party is suffering from a lack of enthusiasm as measured in numerous public opinion surveys. What really brings the liberals down besides, you know, uh, chomping on each other now and then is the fact that if it isn't romantic, if there isn't that charge, that frisian, then I'm really not interested. I only come out when there is a plot at hand. While many of the congressional races will turn on local issues and the performance of individual candidates, party officials are eager to try to match some of the national energy that has been generated among Republicans by the Tea Party movement. <laughs> the Madison rally will, in part, be a test of whether Mr. Obama can still provide that kind of political punch. In February 2008, Mr. Obama, then a candidate, filled the 17,000 coal center in Madison and left thousands more outside waiting to get in. Of course, the weather was better, too. Well, good luck. I hope the crowds are there. Well, ha, 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 and ho, ho, ho. Uh, today gets a comedy calendar, just like every other day. It is the 5th of October, and who have I got for you, Pete? Well, how about Larry Fine? Larry Fine, Larry Fine was the stooge in the middle. 
Oh, yeah, you have, if you know Stooge, of course, you go, Larry, but... Uh, right, yeah. right. He's the guy who always got socked from the guys on both sides, All right? right. Yep. Larry Fine, he was uh, he was born Stooge on... Stooge in the middle. 5th of October in 1902, died in 1975, and Bill Dana, oh, also man. born today, his Jose Jimenez. A lot of people don't remember that. That's, that's he, 50, 60 well, stuff. Well, it's the... He, he probably had more fans than the astronauts had because he became one of the astronauts by uh, doing a comedy act in which he became Jose Jimenez, the, the astronaut. Yeah, he was famous. He was very famous at the time, sold a lot of records, did a lot of television, and I think he, he's uh, he's still around. He was born in 1924, so Probably he's an elderly yeah. gent. But yeah. there you have it for Friday, two comics that <laughs> time's forgetting. So there you have it, two comics born uh, today, more or less, uh, the 5th of October, and they're on their way to obscurity. Isn't it too bad? Just like us. Pull in your reel, Mr. Fielding. You're barking up the wrong fish. Talking Points Memo tells us that Bob McDonald, the Republican governor of Virginia, announced last Friday that he will not declare next April Confederate History Month. Well, that's good news. McDonald caused a stir this April when he proclaimed Confederate History Month, something that had been a tradition in the past, but that his predecessors had skipped. His wise predecessors had skipped, but not McDonald. Most critics made hay of the fact that he made no mention of slavery in the proclamation. He eventually apologized and added a clause about evil and inhumane practice. But on Friday, speaking during a commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, McDonald Donald announced that he would declare next April Civil War in Virginia Month. My major and unacceptable omission of slavery disappointed and hurt a lot of people, myself included, he said, according to the Washington Post. That sounds to me like a real apology. He said he hurt a lot of people, not I'm sorry if people misunderstood or people were hurt by what I said. He said, I hurt him and I hurt myself. So the man has some baitsum. 150 years is long enough for Virginia to fight the Civil War, he said. Well, probably not, according to a bunch of Virginians, and certainly a bunch of people below Virginia don't agree at all. But the fact is, is the the Confederate flag is slowly and surely fading into history. From the New York Times, more bad, bad news out of Afghanistan. Uh, Am I surprised? The only good news we could get out of Afghanistan is no news because we're not there. Members of an American army unit consumed with drug use randomly chose Afghan civilians to kill and then failed to report the abuses out of fear they would suffer retaliation from their commander, according to testimony in military court this week. The testimony in a hearing to determine whether one of those soldiers, Specialist Jeremy N. Morlock, would face a court-martial and a possible death sentence came the same day that a videotape in the case was leaked showing Specialist Morlock talking to investigators about the killings in gruesome detail with no apparent emotion. Just the right kind of person to send over there in a U.S. Army outfit. Top Army officials worry that the case against Specialist Morlock and four other soldiers accused in the killings of three Afghan civilians will undermine efforts to build relationships with Afghans in the war against the Taliban. 
You think so? Huh? You think the Afghans may take these random murders personally? The soldiers are accused of possessing dismembered body parts, including fingers and a skull, and collecting photographs of dead Afghans. Some images show soldiers posing with the dead. As many as 70 images are believed to be in evidence. Uh, well, it was also this way when I trained briefly with the Special Forces at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. I was in a medical unit. I was a six-month wonder, but the Special Forces guys all also trained in medics. So I shared a barracks with a whole bunch of kids going over. This is 64. And they just couldn't wait to get over to Vietnam and start making them necklaces out of ears. Some of the soldiers have said in court documents that they were forced to participate in the killings by a supervisor, Sergeant Calvin Gibbs, who was also accused in the killings. All five defendants have said that they are not guilty. In one incident, Specialist Morlock recounted in the video, he described Sergeant Gibbs identifying for no apparent reason an Afghan civilian in a village, then directing Morlock and another soldier to fire on the man after Sergeant Gibbs lobbed a grenade in his direction. He kind of placed me and Winfield over here so we had a clean line of sight for this guy. And, you know, he pulled out one of the grenades, an American grenade, popped it, throws a grenade, and tells me and Winfield, all right, wax this guy, kill this guy, kill this guy, Sergeant Morlock said in the video. Referring to the Afghan, the investigator asked, did you see him present any weapons? Was he aggressive toward you at all? Sergeant Morlock replied, no. No, nothing at all. No, he wasn't a threat. So you think maybe the Afghans may look askance at this kind of activity? I wonder. No, I don't. We're killing ourselves over there while we're killing everybody else. History repeats itself. Patterns in the stone We close our eyes and fumbling We listen or we don't The anchor man is babbling And the weather man's a liar Reports a waste of time for the bored and the tired. And the past is all we talk about, cause it's all we've ever
I have Loren Moray uh, back on uh, Skype with me here on Radio Free Oz. Nice to have you back, Loren. Uh, Thank our, you. You bet. In, in our first gathering, we talked about the fact that the effect of, u- of using depleted uranium uh, munitions creating of uranium gas, which gets rained out all over Asia, has had an amazingly uh, negative effect upon China, raising its diabetes and infertility and obesity quotient, all connected directly to radiation. And then you recently went to a war crimes conference in Malaysia and and gave them some very interesting um, and shocking results of your studies. Would you go back over those for us and we can take it from there? Yes. Uh, Tune Dr. Mahathir the former prime minister of Malaysia was approached by the Iraqis and Palestinians and uh, they asked him to help them because no world leader would give them any aid or even listen to them. And uh, he, he is the most respected Muslim leader in the world and he agreed to help them. So he began organizing these war crimes conferences I've been to two of them. There were 5,000 people there, and he and his wife are both medical doctors. He said to me, Loren, you are working on the most important issue in the world today. Now, that's for sure because after 15 years of depleted uranium wars and the number of diabetics uh, before these wars in 1986 was 30 million globally, is expected to reach 350 million by 2025. Good Lord. Now, <laughs> Peter, China, and India have the highest diabetes rates in the world. And in 1978, the Chinese diabetes rate was 0.6% of the population. Mm-hmm. By 1995, it was 1.5%, and by 2000, it was 2.4%. That's 13% annual growth oh increase. And there's got to be a real reason for that. That just isn't a, st- a statistical anomaly. And you think mm-hmm. that it, it, ba- it basically is the, the raining out of radioactive particles, these nanoparticles on the, on the mainland from the well, depleted it, uranium among, you know, that we're using as munitions? It, it has to be because between 2006 and seven in China, the, the diabetes rate reached 21%. So how could you have such a huge increase in uh, just a couple of years, yeah, it, and exactly because they and, don't change their they haven't changed their eating habits overnight or anything like that, right? That's right. And diabetes is also associated with obesity and heart di- disease. Yes. So we were talking about China's obesity. The rate doubled between 1992 and 2002 to 200 million. Twenty-three percent of Chinese are overweight. And 60 million, or 7.1%, are completely obese. And I've seen photos of 300-pound Chinese people, patients, lying on tables getting acupuncture and massages, trying to cure their diabetes when they have no idea it's caused by the uranium in the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Yugoslavia. Is there any way to alert uh, the Chinese government to alert the American public. I mean, Radio Friaz is doing its bit, but uh, is, is there no one else that's interested in taking what was described oh, to you the, as the most important issue in the world forward? 
the um, the all the governments, almost all the governments around the world know this. Um, it's a it's a global cover up and a network of um, the most vicious criminals that have ever existed on this planet called the New World Order, and I like to call it the New World Odor. But these uh, people who are behind the wars because they're profiteering from the wars are also have a depopulation program, and this was even suggested in the 1700s by Malthus, uh, who was a British uh, intellect and wrote books about it. Now, there was no overpopulation in the 1700s, so it's not really about population, overpopulation. It's really about getting rid of inconvenient people who own the mineral resources on their territorial lands that these uh, mining magnets and mining interests and international financiers want to exploit. So they're aware of it, and they're covering it up, and, uh, and we're, we're the world's policemen, and we're the superpower, and we're, we're basically blowing up you know, this and that with our depleted uranium and filling the skies with, with dangerous uh, you know, uranium gases. It's not a pretty picture, Loren. Is there anything you suggest we can do about it as individuals? Well, well, what's really important is to tell your neighbors, you know, lean over the back fence, uh, go on radio and, and uh, do, during uh, the, the question and answer period and bring it up, write uh, letters to your newspapers. And also, the way to protect yourself, because I graphed the uranium levels in Los Angeles drinking water, and I can see every war in Iraq and Afghanistan in Los Angeles drinking water. It's full of uranium. So what do we do? So, so the most important thing to do is to get reverse osmosis filters for the drinking water in your house. Well, thank you very much, Loren. That is, that's... That's useful information, and we'll have you back again because this obviously isn't a problem that's going away very quickly. (laughs) Right. Thank you. Thank you. This is Strictly Off the Huff. It may just be the bouncing ball of randomness at work, but new polls in California, Nevada, Ohio, and Kentucky released over the weekend gave Democrats something to smile about or perhaps just a little less to wince at. Specifically, a new California poll confirms a slight rebound by Senator Barbara Boxer, while a new Nevada survey conducted by a Republican firm is more positive than other recent surveys, giving Senator Harry Reid his biggest edge since August. In California, a new survey sponsored by the LA Times and USC finds Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer leading Republican challenger Carly Fiorina by eight percentage points. The new L.A. Times-USC results also show Democrat Jerry Brown with a five-point edge over Republican Meg Whitman in the California governor's race, a slightly better margin than on the survey USA and field polls from last week. She's already spent like, what, $110 million of her own bucks in order to beat you know, Governor Moonbeam. She's not going to beat him. He's the wiliest politician in America. And the fact that that she can and we allow her to spend $110 million on this, this vanity campaign, that money should be immediately sucked out of her account and put into the Commonwealth, wherever that belongs. A new poll sponsored by the Retail Association of Nevada 
uh, produced a bit of a man bites dog story. The survey conducted by the respected Republican campaign polling firm Public Opinion Strategies shows Democratic Senator Harry Reid with a five-point advantage over Republican Sharon Angle. So there may be a little less blood in the bath when it's over. From the gray lady who is still around. The CIA has drastically increased its bombing campaign in the mountains of Pakistan in recent weeks, American officials have said. The strikes are part of an effort by military and intelligence operatives to try to cripple the Taliban in a stronghold being used to plan attacks against American troops in Afghanistan. So we're losing it in Afghanistan, and the attacks are being planned now in Pakistan, and we're over there droning them. As part of its covert war in the region, the CIA, what is the CIA doing going to war? Have launched 20 attacks with armed drone aircraft thus far in September. September alone. That's almost an attack a day. The most ever during a single month and more than twice the number in a typical month. But of course, in Pakistan, now that the CIA are there, there is no such thing as a typical month. This expanded air campaign comes as top officials are racing to stem the rise of American casualties before the Obama administration's comprehensive review of its Afghanistan strategy set for December. Mmm. American and European officials are also evaluating reports of possible terrorist plots in the West from militants based in Pakistan. So they're trying to make the numbers look good before we have to decide whether we want to make it an endless war. And now we've got the new one, the war on terror angle. Well, they're all sitting around there in, uh, you know, Islamabad figuring out ways to come over here and cause us problems. They're making bombs that go boom in Baltimore. The strikes also reflect mounting frustration both in Afghanistan and the United States that Pakistan's government has not been aggressive enough in dislodging militants from their bases in the country's western mountains. Dislodge them? They're paying them. They've been using them for 30 years against anybody that in any way comes, uh, you know, in 180 to their their foreign policy. They're worried about India. We don't get it. They're using these militants to fight India, and they need Afghanistan because Afghanistan's at India's back door. Beyond the CIA drone strikes, the war in the region is escalating in other ways. In recent days, American military helicopters have launched three airstrikes into Pakistan that military officials estimate killed more than 50 people suspected of being members of the militant group known as the Haqqani Network, which is responsible for a spate of deadly attacks against American troops. The Haqqani Network, which the CIA, those brave shadow warriors that are now sending all the drones in, totally supported for a decade during our thumb-nosing, you know, um, escapade in Afghanistan, his father, Hakani Sr. was paid for almost entirely by the CIA, and now it's coming home to roost. According to one Pakistani intelligence official, the recent drone attacks may not have killed any senior Taliban or Qaeda leaders. Many senior operatives have already fled North Waziristan, he said, to escape the CIA drone campaign and the bad weather and the midges. 
As evidence of the growing frustration of American officials, General David Petraeus, the top American commander in Afghanistan, has recently issued veiled warnings to top Pakistani commanders that the United States could launch unilateral ground operations in the tribal areas should Pakistan refuse to dismantle the militant networks in North Waziristan, this according to American officials. Now, Maybe I didn't get it right, but that doesn't sound like a veiled warning when you tell them to get them guys out of Waziristan or we gonna cook you. Special operations commanders have also been updating plans for cross-border raids, which would require approval from President Obama. Don't give it. For now, officials said it remains unlikely that the United States would make good on such threats to send American troops over the border, given the potential blowback inside Pakistan, an ally. Yeah, with allies like that. But that could change, they said, if Pakistan-based militants were successful in carrying out a terrorist attack on American soil. Remember the guy that tried to <laughs> blow up Times Square with that stupid car bomb? I mean, it's not stupid. It might have worked. But he said he got the idea. How did he get the idea? He said he told the judge that the CIA drone campaign was one of the factors that led him to attack the United States. So let's attack Pakistan because maybe they're going to attack us, which will then encourage more of the kids over over there to come over and do more bad in the United States. Wow, that's a bridge that leads in the wrong direction both ways. If you catch my meaning, if you get my drift. For 13 years, the Reverend Joseph Palacios lived, prayed, and studied with the Jesuits. But he left the Roman Catholic order in 2005 because he would not profess a vow of obedience to the Pope. I felt like I could still be a Catholic priest, Policio said, but I could not deal with that kind of scrutiny and command from the top. Now the 59-year-old priest and adjunct professor at Georgetown University, the nation's oldest Catholic university, is again at odds with the church's hierarchy, this time on one of its signature issues, the definition of marriage. In recent years, Catholic bishops have used their moral influence and deep pockets to push for bans on same-sex unions in states from California to Maine. But... A new core of increasingly vocal Catholics is urging a mutiny against the hierarchy, in the words of one activist, particularly on gay marriage and related matters. For example, on September 14, Policios and other advocates launched Catholics for Equality, a group that aims to persuade believers in the movable middle to defy the bishops and support civil rights for gays, lesbians, bisexual, and transgender people. Similarly, four Catholic groups with a combined 112 years of activism on gay issues announced the formation of Equally Blessed, a coalition dedicated to providing a voice for faithful, pro-equality Catholics. Also this week, a mailing of 400,000 DVDs sent to every registered Catholic family in Minnesota explaining the church's position on marriage sparked a Return the DVD campaign. A Catholic artist pledged to make a sculpture with discarded discs. The artist has been suspended from her artist-in-residence job at the Basilica of St. Mary in Minneapolis. Policios, who teaches sociology at Georgetown, says surveys show Catholics are more accepting of LGBT people than any other Christian group. He cited a May 2010 Gallup poll in which 62% of Catholics said gay and lesbian relationships are morally acceptable, a 16% increase from just four years ago. That's quite a bump.
Catholic gay rights supporters have been emboldened by the example of nuns who bucked the bishops by supporting the health care overhaul Congress passed last March, said Francis Di Bernardo, executive director of New Ways Ministry, one of the groups involved in Equally Blessed. I had no idea that the Catholic Church was using their money to counter the health care reform. That's, they, should, they should lose their tax-free status for that. People are using that as a touchstone, he said. They see that the nuns were courageous, and they feel like they can be courageous too. And courageous is contagious. Yeah, you rock on there. You get them equally blessed, because they certainly are. From the Huff. The Environmental Protection Agency wants to regulate a toxic chemical used in rocket fuel that has contaminated drinking water supplies, reversing a decision made under the Bush administration. I'm particularly aware of this because when I worked in a councilman's office in L.A. about four years ago, we dealt with this very problem with rocketine out in Burbank. Tell you more about that later. The agency has proposed that the chemical, perchlorate, be regulated under the Safe Drinking Act. Perchlorate has been found in drinking water in at least 35 states at levels high enough to interfere with thyroid function and pose developmental problems in humans, particularly for babies and fetuses. The Defense Department used perchlorate for decades in testing rockets and missiles and found perchlorate contamination stems from defense and aerospace activities. In 2008, under President George W. Bush, the EPA decided against regulating the chemicals, saying that setting a federal standard would do little to reduce risks to public health. This is real W thinking. That decision angered environmentalists and Democratic lawmakers. The Pentagon and EPA have tussled over the issue for years, with the Pentagon potentially facing liability if the standard were to force water agencies around the country to undertake costly cleanup efforts. Some states, like California and Massachusetts, have set their own standards. I was working for a councilman named Joel Wax in L.A., very interesting, very progressive man who decided to bring forward the first legislation, at least in California that I know of, certainly in Southern California, to regulate perchlorate because there was a lot of it that was contaminating the the wells around all the defense factories in L.A., particularly the Rocketdyne plant near Burbank. So um, of all people, we had Erin Brockovich come to our uh, (laughs) press conference. She was something else. And uh, we made quite a stir and actually got the legislation passed, and I think it's what moved things along in California. It's deadly stuff, perchlorate. It has to be regulated. I don't care what George W. Bush thinks. Of course, I really don't think what George W. Bush thinks. This has got to be done. There's a ton of environmental regulations that have to go in to clean up our groundwater. We've got to be thinking along these issues. We've got to go green. We can't allow this country to slip into some sort of... um, Tea Party miasma, where nobody cares about what's in the drinking water, because they're they're dazed to begin with, dazed and confused. They don't know one well from another. Well, there's a lot of poems in the news. They just come burbling out of that gray text and look wonderful on my typewriter. Actually, this one hasn't gotten to the typewriter yet. The news is so new and and so sad. In the veil of SWAT, executions, easy targets in white camise. One by one or together? Together. Together on Facebook they fall. Sent from my iPhone. 
Well, I can smell autumn in the air here for sure. I mean, you know, it's chilly in the morning. And there's a slight taste of Indian summer during the afternoon. I wonder if it was like that back in Tang, China, Dave. Well, you know, we're going to go way back because I'm reading. These are this is a set of poems by a guy named Dao Chen. Is it pre-Tang? It's even maybe a century before. It's probably still Tang. I, I'm not going to sit here and say I know one Chinese dynasty from another, but the Tang was a long one. So. Okay, good. Let's go. For so it. this is Dao Chen, and, and he, he wrote poems about drinking wine. Ooh, you got to like love him. a poet who's there. Okay, here's one of them. Old friends know what I like. They bring wine whenever they come by. We spread out and sit under the pines. After several rounds, we're drunk again. Old men chatting away all at once, passing the jug around, out of turn. Unaware that there is a self. How do we learn to value things? We are lost in these deep thoughts. In wine, there is a heady taste. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think Radio Free Oz is a heady taste. And I think what makes it such a heady taste is the Oz team that puts it all together, and I want to give them some cred. There's Dave Maloney, our audio engineer, and the man who owns Blue Youth, from which this show comes. My co-host, David Osmond. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Jazz Glass is our forensic there. He's going to find it. Phil Fountains, he's in charge of the Oz design group. Keeps it real pretty. Kelly Brewer has joined us just in the last couple of weeks and is already pushing forward our syndication. Uh, Scott Wilde is designing our website and keeping us au courant in the world of social media. Tom Gedwello is our webmaster and he is master of that web and producer of it all, Bill McIntyre. See you all tomorrow.